All right, you ready to start the book of Ruth? It's going to be good. I love this book. Uh, we love walking through books of the Bible uh, together as a church. And so if you're newer, here's our format. Uh, we typically will go Old Testament book, New Testament book, Old Testament book, New Testament book, back and forth. And in the middle, we'll do some topical series that are pertinent to things that are going on in the life of our church and things that we feel as though need to be addressed. And so Acts chapter 20 calls uh, me as a pastor to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. And so this structure really helps me uh, to do that, to, to continue to proclaim not just uh, the things that I enjoy proclaiming, because we all kind of tend to lean one way or another, uh, but to really proclaim the whole counsel of God. It keeps us on task. It keeps me off of my soapbox. And so uh, the book of Ruth is where we are. And uh, we're going to go through this. It'll take about six weeks or so. Short little book, four chapters, but just incredibly powerful. This story for me is one of my most favorite stories in the entire Bible. There's a little something, something for everybody in this book. These are just average people facing everyday life issues that we all face. Things like making decisions, things like just dealing with the pains of life, with loss, with romance, with love, with friendship, with fellow followers of of the Lord, finances, possessions, just average people, average stuff, and stuff that, quite frankly, we all tend to screw up really bad, right? Things that we all just, we we just make big mistakes in these areas. And, And what we see through this story is that God loves to make good out of our mistakes, ultimately, through Jesus. And, and that's why we have this subtitle, Broken, Made, Beautiful. That he's making something beautiful out of our busted up, messed up lives and all of the mistakes that, that we make. And, and so keep going because God can redeem your failures, your mistakes. Keep going because God is in control. Press on because the finish line is near. And when you face the finish line and you look back, you're going to say, aha, I see what God was up to. In fact, this past marathon Monday, this past Monday, uh, we went and watched the marathon with some friends from the church at Cleveland Circle, had a really good time, and then we went home, and I changed, and I uh, did my uh, long run for the week and ran down to the finish line from my house and then turned around and ran backwards the last five miles of the race. And while I'm running, at this point in the afternoon, they're clearing the runners off of the road, and uh, they're putting them onto the sidewalk now, and the sweepers are coming. So these are kind of your last leggers. And, and I'm running the final five miles opposite direction. So I'm face on with these guys. And as I'm running, I'm just fist bumping and high-fiving and keep going. You got this. Don't quit. Keep going. And it was invigorating for me and hopefully helpful for them. And I really believe that uh, that's what I'm tasked to do uh, today and through this book is just to encourage you keep going. Keep going. Don't quit. God's got some good stuff that he is doing in the midst of the craziness and the pain and the struggle that you feel. You might not see the finish line yet. You might not see the finished product yet, but you can know and trust because God is good. God is working all things together for good for those who know him, love him, and are called according to his purposes. And so here we go. Book of Ruth. If you haven't flipped on over there, go ahead and flip on over to Ruth. We'll put it up on the screen for you. We got the Bible on our app as well. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. So start from the beginning of the Bible and work your way on over there. And we're just going to do the first five verses today. How's that sound? Sound good? All right, here we go. Uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days, here we are, in the beginning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, not to be mistaken with Oprah, Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So that woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Wow, what a bummer a way to start off this morning. Just one decision. Can we say that together on the count of three? One, two, three. Just one decision. Let me ask you a question. By a show of hands, has anybody made a terrible decision? Show of hands. Both of mine are up. Terrible decision. Have you ever made a terrible decision that had very serious repercussions? You ever had a, a terrible decision that you made that, that not only had serious repercussions in your own life, but in the lives of other people around you? Just, just one decision. There was that time when I was eight years old, and without my brother's encouragement, he was younger but wiser, I took a lighter and went into my backyard and started fooling around with the lighter. And I had a flashback this weekend because yesterday I caught my eight-year-old actually playing with a lighter. <laughs> and I said, how ironic, because I'm actually talking about this tomorrow. And here we are. And I had a lighter. And, and where I grew up, there was this vine that would grow in the summertime called kudzu. And I think it came from some Asian land and, and made it to our, our country. And, and it grows in the summer up to like a foot a day. Well, in the fall, it dries up. It's no longer green. It gets really brittle, except for those, those really big vines. We could actually swing from them uh, in the trees like Tarzan way in the woods behind the fence. Well, this kudzu grew up over the fence. And then my dad would have to keep chopping it back so that we would have this, this backyard. And I remember going to the fence, playing with the lighter, and my brother was there like, Josh, don't, don't do this. Don't. And I said, I'm just going to light one leaf. <laughs> I was just going to light one leaf, honestly. And I, I lit that leaf and, and it just, the whole fence was on fire. It climbed over the fence into the woods. Fire trucks come out. And I didn't see the light of day for like three months after that because I was grounded. It was unbelievable. Just a terrible, terrible, terrible decision that my family will never let me down. And and as we open up this book today, the book of Ruth, here in chapter 1, I want to look at a topic that is of immeasurable importance for every single one of that. This is so massively important that I believe that if you will latch on to what we're talking about today, it will save your life, it'll save many people in your family, it'll save your friends, people you love, people who, who maybe you don't feel all that close to, but they're looking on and, and, and watching your life. It'll save a lot of people a lot of trouble. And the concept that I want to look at this morning from Ruth chapter 1 is this concept of biblical decision making. Massively important stuff. And these first five verses of Ruth show us just how devastating the consequences can be from just one 
decision. Let's take this story piece by piece. Again, look at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. And so right up front we get this historical setting for this book. We're we're in a period that's known as the period of the judges. It goes from 1200 BC to about 1020 BC. This, This period spans from the death of Joshua all the way through the coronation of Israel's first king, King Saul, God didn't want them to have a king. He was to ultimately be the king over them, but they demanded a king, and he gave him a king. He was a bummer of a king because he looked really good, and he was really tall. He was a great, mighty warrior, but he let him down. And, and so they demanded a king. But before that, they didn't have a king. God was their king, and yet they weren't acting like God was their king. They're wandering around aimless, and they're, they're living their lives very very idly. They're, they're, they're doing not much of anything at this point because prior to this, God led them out of slavery in Egypt, brought them through uh, the wilderness, and they're, they're then getting into the promised land and going through all these military conquests to get into the promised land. But now they're in the promised land, and so no more military conquests, and they're just kind of sitting idle, and they have no leadership. They're submitting their lives to no king, no leader, not even to to parents. They're just doing whatever they want. And what we find is that total freedom, doesn't that sound nice? Total freedom sounds awesome, but total freedom leads to slavery, ultimately. They get the total freedom, and things are just out of control, wild, and, and crazy. If you want some supplemental reading to this series, you can look the book prior to this. is the book of Judges. It talks about the period of the Judges just before Ruth. And we just see that we are in one of the most wicked periods uh, for the people of, of Israel. It's just, it was just awful. They continued in this cycle over and over and over again of doing whatever they want. And then when they got in a really bad spot, they would call to God to help, and he would send them a judge, a leader who would help them. And then they get comfortable again, and they would just do it all over again. Just this wicked cycle that they were in. And there are some exceptions, and one of those exceptions is this woman named Ruth. She stands out in this period of darkness. This book is just a short little story that focuses on this woman and her man in a very wicked period. And I, I, this morning, though, I want to start at the story before the story, and that is the story of her soon-to-be father-in-law before we even really get much of Ruth in this picture. So again, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So here's the deal. There's a famine in the land. My kids all the time go, dad, I'm starving. You have no idea what starving means. If starving means you need a bag of Doritos, they're on the shelf, but you are not starving. There's, there's a real famine in the land and it doesn't say it, but it is almost certain that this is God's judgment on these people for their wickedness. Now, let me be clear. Not every bad thing that happens to us happens as a result of God's judgment directly to us. But sometimes God allows us to go through pain to help us to avoid more pain. Sometimes he, he, he allows us to go through some pain to help us to avoid getting into a worse situation where we're going to experience even more pain. Parents, you, you, you get this. A lazy and and careless parent never disciplines their child because it's hard for them. I tell my kids all the time and they laugh because I flashbacks to when I was a kid. My parents would say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Yeah, right. My tail hurts so bad right now. I promise it hurts. It's hard. But a good, good parent will discipline their children. God cares. He's getting Israel, his people's attention. And so there is a famine in the land. It says, look down again, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So what town is this famine specifically hitting? Bethlehem. A little town of 
Christmas story, you remember? That's long before this. The, the town of Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. Do you get the irony here? The employees of Panera Bread are locked inside and they're starving to death, right? This is wild. The, the house of bread and the people are, are hungry. They're, they're having trouble providing food for their family. They're, they're hurting. And now it gets real as we, we focus in on one particular family. A husband, his wife, their two children, this, this Jewish family. It gets very real because children are involved. It says there was a man, his name was Elimelech. His wife's name is Naomi. The names of their two sons, Malon and Kilion, Bethlehem and Judah. And they went to Moab and they remained there. So we, we meet this guy, Elimelech. His name means my God is king. But again, like his people, who he kind of represents for us, he, he's not living like God is his king. His wife, her name is Naomi. They have two sons, Malon, Kilion. That sounds so cool, right? So Lord of the Rings-ish. But listen, do not name your children Malon and Kilion. I know like hip, cool Bible names are really cool for hipster Christians. But avoid these because Malon and Kilion means sick and dying. Literally diseased and wasting. Avoid these names. And Elimelech, their father, is forced to make a decision. His family is starving. They're, they're, they're not eating, what do I do? And the decision he makes is, I'm going to bring my family to the land of Moab, which is not very far away. But as you know, some of you, moving is a big decision. And if you have a spouse and if you have children involved, it's a tremendously massive decision. It's interesting that Moab is only 50 miles away. I think that further solidifies the point, the reality that this famine is judgment. Because only 50 miles away they're getting the rain to, to grow their crops so that they can eat. But over here in Bethlehem, it's not because God is judging his people and he's getting the attention of his people. And so this dad has to make a decision. Dads, you have to make decisions in your family. Many, many decisions. There's a lot of pressure on you. The Bible calls us men to be leaders in our marriage, leaders in our home, not to be bullies, not to domineer, but to lead in our homes, to take up that burden of responsibility, to say, I'll take that. I'll make the tough calls. Uh, we'll work together, and, and we'll discuss, but I'll, I'll take that. I'll be the one who's up awake at night about how I'm going to provide for my family. God calls you men to do that. This dad is in the same position. He has to make a decision, and his decision is, are we going to stay here let them starve to death are there other options or do we just move to this place where we know that we can get fed and his decision is I think we're going to leave seems pretty reasonable I want to provide for my family but in making this decision to move to Moab what is he not doing he's not dealing with the reason that they're in famine in the first place and that is that the people are not living for the Lord they're not submitting under the Lord's leadership instead he runs and he goes to a place where he thinks it's in the best interest of his family the reality is the best interest of his family is to repent of their sin and to trust God now of all the places they move they move to Moab which is a, a people that are known to be an incredibly wicked people. The Moabites were born as a people out of incest. This is Lot, the story of Lot. Some of you are familiar with this. Slept with his daughter 
And then from this, they, they had a child, and, and out of this came a, just a tremendously wicked group of people, the, the, the Moabites. They were known to be incredibly perverted. They continued in their incestuous relationships. They were, they were a people who did not worship God. They worshiped a false god that they called Chemosh. And, and God's people were not to surround themselves with the Moabites, they, they just, they, they were not. It, it was explicitly laid out in the scriptures. Do not surround yourself with the Moabites. But Elimelech says, I'm moving there. My whole family's going to go there because they have food. Seems like a rational decision. He does what many men will do. And that is to make decisions about where we're going to live solely based on economics, solely based on job opportunity, and overlook lots of lots of other important details. There's one word in verse 1 that's very important as you look back down. Notice the word sojourn. The word sojourn means to stay somewhere for a short period of time. That was the plan. We're just going to sojourn here. We're just going to be here for, a, for, for just a while and probably just going to come back when the famine ends. We, we fatten up the family a little bit, and, and then we'll come back. It's a momentary compromise of his faith in God. I wonder if any of us, when it comes to making decisions, have ever been there. Just, just a momentary small compromise. But those momentary small little compromises will come back to bite you. What you might have planned to be a momentary compromise often turns into a lasting compromise. Compare verse 1 to, to verse 2. His plans in verse 1, I'm just going to sojourn there. Verse 2, he actually, it says, remained there. So think about what he's done. He's taken his wife. He's taken his two boys out of their place of, of, of worship where God's people were, not like, unlike taking them out of the church and, and involving them in other things. We're just going to do the clubs on Sundays. We're going to do the sports on Sundays. We're never going to be around God's people. We're going to prioritize some other things. He takes them away from that, takes them away from their support system, and he brings them to a place where they will likely be the only Yahweh God-fearing, worshiping family. A, 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 a people that worship a false Take God with wicked practices, perverted practices. He turns from spiritual opportunity, should they repent, for food. And ultimately, instead of accepting God's punishment, repenting, dealing with the sin that caused them to get there, he makes one really devastating decision. This is a devastating decision to move. Now look at the result of his decision. Verse 3, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, what, what, what happened to him? What happened to him? He died. And she was left with her two sons. This is crazy because they moved to Moab so that they can live and instead he dies. And he leaves behind a widow and two sons. Now I've known a few people in my life who have, who have passed away and, and have continued in our friendship relationship with their widow and their, their children, and it's just a horrible situation. Horrible situation. So difficult, so dark, so just painful. Fortunately for Naomi, she still has her two sons. And that day, if you died, your husband, your husband died, you were financially ruined. 
There was no life insurance. And in a society where the, the husband won all the bread and it was, you, were just, you were just ruined. You were destined to poverty if you were a widow. Unless you had some sons. And they had some sons. And those guys would then, of course, look after her. Read on. These sons, verse 4, took Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years in, in total. We see some more results from Elimelech's bad decision. And that is that his children go on to marry Moabites. Now this is not like, hey, you're a Red Sox fan and your children go on to marry Yankees fans. Like, oh, that would, that would crush some of us. This is entirely different. This is not like a preferential thing. This is your family worships God. Your family is to center everything about who you are around God. For us, let's put it in our day. Uh, everything of who we are around Jesus Christ and your children go on to, to, to date and to then marry someone who they do not give a rip about God. And the confusion that ensues from that. That's what happens, again, as a result of Elimelech's bad decision. This is a big deal to God. Christians, hear me. This is a really big deal to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 talks about this, this concept of, of not being unequally yoked. And I cannot emphasize this enough when we live in this, this city. This is a, a difficult city. I, I, I get it. But the Bible is so clear. Again, God's commands are for your good and for your protection. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. The yoke was a, a wooden frame that would be put over two animals so that they could, together could work in unison to accomplish something together. An unequal yoke would be if you took an, an ox and, and a donkey and you put them in the yoke. Now, it's going to be painful on their neck. And they're also going to go in circles, aren't they? Because one stride is larger than the other. Or even if you put an ox that's big and an ox that's a little bit smaller. Well, we both are ox, right? One's really strong and one's not. There's, a, there's an issue there. The Bible makes it really clear to save you from, from deep heartache when you compromise and, and, and move in this direction of, of not marrying or even dating someone who's not a follower of Jesus. This was a big deal. And I don't really blame the sons. Blame the dad. Yes, the sons are accountable, but the dad brought them into this place where this literally was their only option. So these boys meet Moabite women and they marry them. But catch this, verse 5. And then Malon and Kilion also died. So the boys die and the woman is left with her two daughters-in-law. He moves so that they could live. No, he doesn't move, does he? He sojourns, just temporary compromise, just for a little while, so that we could live. And that temporary compromise turns into long-lasting compromise, 10 years. They get married. They lay down roots. They're, they're ready to start a family. And the men die. The, the breadwinners of this day, they are, they are dead. It's, it's not looking really really good at all. The clear lesson from this story here is, is really simple. And that is that your decisions today determine your life tomorrow. It's just basic, obvious stuff. Your decisions today determine your life tomorrow. And if we could press in a little bit more, your, your momentary compromises have long-lasting consequences. He does what seems 
reasonable. I want to provide for my family. But he did not count the spiritual and eternal costs of this decision. Maybe he counted the cost, but he didn't put enough thought into it. He didn't make the right decision. His, his vision was very short-sighted. He, he sought some immediate gratification instead of the long-term result. He thought about their stomachs and not their, their souls. Now, what about you? Because this applies to all of us, every single one of us. Your decisions today affect your life tomorrow. What are some decisions that are in front of you right now? Maybe you've yet to make the decision. Or it's a decision that you make every day or once a week or pretty frequently. And and how have you been doing in these decisions with regards to how they're going to affect your tomorrow? Your decisions don't just affect you. They implicate other people just like Elimelech's decisions implicate other people. Mom and dad, clearly your decisions affect you. Your children, I have seen over and over and over again the havoc that terrible parental decisions can wreak on children. I'll I'll never forget. It just burned into my memory. The very first time I had a teenage girl come into my office just sobbing hysterically because she just found out that dad was cheating on mom. And then the havoc that came out of that. Awful. Momentary decision for some immediate gratification and the devastating results. What decisions are we making or or are before us that we we could say, what does it mean for me? And then what decisions that are before us that we have to ask, what does it not only mean for me, but how does it affect the people that I love? And also, how could it affect the people that I don't necessarily have this, this relationship with, but they're looking in on me as a person who's following Jesus, who's, who's bearing the name of Jesus Christ, Christian, little Christ's, what effects, what implications are there there? Are you making decisions that, that display that you don't trust God? God, you can't feed us. I don't, God, I don't trust you. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. It seemed like a good decision. It was a terrible decision. Implicated his kids. They were well fed, but they're dead. doesn't matter if you're fat. If you're dead, you're dead. Implicated his wife. She's left as a widow. Her name actually means sweetheart. And as we read on in the story, she changes her name. She says, don't call me sweetheart anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Bitter. And then these these young ladies who are brought into the family. It's like a crazy Brady Bunch thing going on here. Moabite women brought into the people of Israel. But without the people of Israel, it's, it's, it's crazy. And here's the good news. Is that God takes mistakes as we read the story. God takes our broken and busted lives. And the big idea in this story is that you can't make so much of a mess that God can't clean it up. You can't. Impossible. You can't make one too many bad decisions that God can't clean it up, that God can't make good out of it. The, The key word in this whole book is redeem. That God redeems. Down the road in Rosendale, we have the Redemption Center. And you always see, I always, I, when I first moved here, I thought, what is it about this area? There's just so many people with, with carts and, and cans. And, and somebody, somebody said, oh, it's because Rosendale's got the Redemption Center. You take the cans and make, ah, okay, okay. You take something and they'll buy it back and they'll restore it and, and repurpose it. And that's exactly what God wants to do. God can redeem. 
But I think there's some things that we can do before we really royally screw it up. And so here's what I want to do for the next little while together as we kind of keep going in this. Is I just want to give you a, kind of a, a grid work through which I, I've kind of filtered my life decisions by for ever since I was, I think, 20. And it's uh, just, just simply steps for biblical decision making. And so if you're a note taker, let me just give you a few steps for making decisions in accordance with God's word. Now, keep in mind as you're, you're thinking through these things, some of your decisions are really, really small. Just little decisions that you can either honor God or dishonor God. They'll all bear results in your life. Little small things can lead to really tremendously huge consequences. Some of these decisions are massively huge decisions like, will I move? Where will I move? Will we have kids? Will we get married? Should I date this person? Should I go for this degree or that degree? Should I go to this college or, or that college? What should I do? Big decisions, small and big decisions, but all of them will affect tomorrow. And so a few steps for biblical decision making. And I want to draw a few of them from Ephesians chapter 5 verses 15 through 17. I'll put it on the screen for you here. Paul is teaching Christians about not being marked or deceived by the sins of the world. And he gives them this passage to help guide them a bit in some of their decisions that they're to make, whether to honor God or to, to not. And so listen to Ephesians chapter 5, 15 and 16. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. So a few steps. Here's the very first one if you're writing this down. And the first one is slow down and think. You ever had a parent or somebody say this phrase to you? What were you thinking? <laughs> That's one that my mother said to me over and over again with extra decibels when I burned the backyard down. What were you thinking? The phrase is for me, the truth is for me that the answer to that phrase is I wasn't thinking. I, like, I literally was not thinking. I was just, just doing it. I was, I was not thinking. I wasn't. And here, Paul says, look carefully how you walk, how you live your life. Carefully means to, to be, be cautious, to, to, to slow down, to pay attention, to do whatever you're going to do in a, in a very mindful kind of way. When, when Becky and I first got married, um, we, got a, we had a dishwasher in our apartment, which was a big deal. Uh, we looked at lots of apartments that didn't have a dishwasher. We had one that did, and I came out of college, and our, our college apartment that I lived in for a couple years did not have a dishwasher, and so we just had paper goods all the time because we did not want to wash dishes. And, and so we're, I'm a newly married man. I've, I'm living the high life with a dishwasher, and I'm telling you, uh, I did not enjoy loading the dishwasher. And yet I wanted to be a good husband, and I wanted to help out a little bit. And so I remember loading the dishwasher, and like, this is not fun. And so one thing that I tend to do with, I'm highly competitive, and so one thing I, I, I did was I just turned it into a game. And I decided I'm just going to race myself. And so this time, okay, it took me three minutes to load the dishwasher. I'm going for 258, baby. And so the next time, 258. And I, I would just keep going faster and faster and faster until one day Becky goes, hey, Josh, um, I noticed we got a few glasses that are missing. You know what happened? Yeah, I broke those because I'd be loading and I'd smash it on the countertop as I was quickly going down, you know. And I, yeah, I broke those. And 
you got to be careful. Right? I was being careless. I was moving fast. I was just cruising through, and I was breaking things. And I think that's how a lot of us can be with our decisions, is we just, we just fire off decisions. We're, you know, we're trying to get stuff done, and we've got our phone going over here. We're listening to something over here, and yeah, yeah just banging off decisions and multitasking. And we need, we need to slow down because we're, we might be breaking things and not even realizing that we're, we're, we're breaking things. Be, be careful, he says, how, how you live. I think this one principle alone could save us all kinds of damage, right? Just slow down. Think about what you're doing. Think about every step that you're taking. Give, give thought to what you're doing. It'll save us a lot of damage. It goes on to say, making the best use of your time. Other translations will say, here's that word again, redeeming the time. In other words, yeah, God can redeem your brokenness, but one way that God redeems some of the brokenness is by preempting it and, and, and giving you some scripture, some warning, so that before you break it, he redeems it. So slow down is one of the best things that you can do. It's just, just slow down. Slow down. Be, be careful. Why? It says because the days are evil. It doesn't say because there's one day where you might make one mistake. No, every single day, Satan, the enemy, the devil, the father of lies is out to deceive you and to cause you to mess up. The enemy comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. He wants to destroy you. And a good way that he can do that is just keep you blinded, keep you moving and cruising fast and not thinking about the decisions that you make. Paul warns us, be careful how you live. Slow down. Think. Here's another step for biblical decision making. Just first slow it down. Second thing is seek biblical wisdom. For followers of Jesus, this should be obvious, but seek biblical wisdom. And God loves to give wisdom to you. James chapter 1, verse 5 says this, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given. So with the decisions that are are coming before you, slow down and give yourself enough time to, to, to pray and say, God, would you give me wisdom in this decision? And you can make a decision that honors him. Some decisions, you've got months to decide. Other decisions, you've got to make pretty fast on the fly, in the office, at the house, wherever you're at. But you can still whisper a, a prayer to God. And I do this all the time. God, would you just help me to, to say the right thing, to make the right decision? And it's amazing how he, love, he loves and generously gives wisdom to those who ask. He loves it. So, so make that prayer. Make that request. God, help me in this decision that I am going to have to make. Slow down. Seek God. Ask for his help. Ask for his wisdom. And the number one place that you're going to find God's wisdom is in the Bible. He has recorded his wisdom for us. Not to say that you're not going to get help outside the Bible because truth is truth is truth and it's God's. But the Bible is the number one place to go to get biblical wisdom, biblical insight. Go there. Here's the third thing. You've slowed down. You've asked God for some wisdom. Third thing is define the decision. You have to define the decision that you are about to make. Here's what I mean. Some decisions are moral decisions and other decisions, they're just not really a moral decision. Now, a moral decision is, is, is pretty easy. You go to the Bible, and the Bible says, do this, don't do this, stay away from that, 
do this. Don't, it's really, it's a moral decision. And if God has revealed what you are to do or not to do in the Bible, done. Skip all the other steps. Make the decision. You're there. It's recorded in the Bible. Hear me. If it's in the Bible, that is what you are supposed to do. The Bible is without error. This is God's holy book. God has recorded his word. I don't get it, Josh. There's things in here that I don't get sometimes either. But I'm telling you, that's what faith is. You trust God. You trust God. You trust God. You step out in faith. You obey. And when you obey what he has recorded, I'm telling you, it is for your own good. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't see how that could be good. Elimelech was in the same position, wasn't he? If I stay right here, we're going to starve. No, you stay right here and, and, and open your Bible again, Elimelech, and see what God has said to you. God, through Moses, said, do not marry these people. Do not hang around these people. It's clear. Got it? If it's a moral decision, the Bible tells you what to do, done. But you may define the decision and say that it's a, a non-moral decision. The Bible doesn't say if we should move to New York City or stay in Boston. The Bible doesn't tell us if we should go out to L.A. or, or, or stay in Boston. I don't, I don't, that, that would be what you would call a non-moral decision. Ultimately, what we're seeking to do now is to determine what the will of the Lord is. That's why I go back to Ephesians chapter 5 and then in verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We have to understand what the will of the Lord is. Much of God's will is recorded right here for you. And if it's recorded, that's his will, period. If there's something that's not recorded in here or a question that's not clearly a moral question, a decision that has to be made that's not clearly a moral decision, we have to seek, we have to unearth what is the will of God. This leads us to our next one, and that is to seek godly counsel. I'd encourage you, all of us, to seek godly counsel. Find some godly people that God has put in your life. And God loves to make his will known, oftentimes through godly people. Get a few so that it can be confirmed. And they might have ate some bad fish the night before, and they say, This is what you, and you get a few people, right? So that you can get it confirmed by a plurality of godly people in your life. You read that in the scriptures. There's something about a plurality. God calls the church not to have a pastor, a cult leader. It calls the church to have a plurality of elders leading the church. And so there's a plurality, seek a plurality of godly counsel, and then you can come to decision through that. Have you ever noticed in the Bible, Solomon? The wisest man to ever live, but the wisest man to ever live asks for counsel more than any other person in the Bible. You ever notice that? Because wisdom seeks wisdom. Maybe he was making those amazing godly decisions because God humbled him enough to ask counsel from other people. If you're wise, you're going to ask for counsel and for wisdom from other people. Let me put some verses up on the screen for you here, and we can just kind of see this from Solomon. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5. This is Solomon speaking. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. Wise people listen and add to their learning. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 15, 22. Proverbs 19, 20. Listen to advice and accept instruction and in the end, you will be what? Be wise. 
Making decisions, bring other people into your decisions. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's death. Didn't that play out for Elimelech and his sons? Seemed right, makes sense, but it led to, to death. Seek godly counsel. Bring people into your decisions, small and big. Here's the next one. Do what you want. Say what? Number five, do what you want. You surprised by this? Notice the asterisk right there, big asterisk. Psalm 37.4 says this, says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Ah, sweet, I like that one. So if I delight in the Lord, he's going to give me anything and everything I want. Read again. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Actually means that if you are delighting in the Lord, and your joy is in him, then what happens is his desires start to become your desires. And if his desires are your desires, then you can do what you want. Because your desires are coming out of an overflow, out of an abundance, of a love for the Lord. So delight yourself in the Lord really was what point five could be. Can we ensure that we are walking with God, that, that there is no greater affection in my life than God? More than football, more than my career, more than a spouse, more than that relationship, more than money. If God is everything to you and you are just so close to him and you are walking with him and you are right with God, if the Bible is silent about your decision, if, if you've prayed through this decision, if you've gone to godly counsel and they're, they're saying it's not, do what you want to do. This hit me when I was in, in high school and, and I had to make a decision between a college and I was looking at three, I mean, this is how fuzzy it was, three Christian colleges, two of them were giving me uh, an opportunity to play some sports at, at these colleges and one was giving me the opportunity to, to do some ministry and I was really wrestling. It's, it all, it was, they're all Christian, I don't even know what to do here. I'm not saying you should only go to a Christian college, by the way, but this is in my story. I had no idea what to do. And then and I was growing in my walk with Jesus, and I was just really in love with him more than ever in my life. And a pastor said, do what you want to do. I said, I don't know what, I, I, yeah, I, you tell me what I need. You do what you, what do you want to do? I said, well, God needs to tell me what he wants to do. He said, God is doing something in your heart and God's going to make you want to go somewhere because I see that you're living for him. You're going to want, and I found that I just wanted to go to this one particular college and that's where I went. And then I met this amazing woman. God is in control, right? If you get to that place, you can do, it's okay to do what you want to do. You're looking at the scriptures. You're praying. You're bringing people into the decision. Do what you want to do. Here's the last one. Last one is this. This might be the hardest for some of us, and that is to exercise faith. Exercise faith in making your decision. You have to act on the decision that God has led you to to make. And for many of us, that decision requires some serious faith. For many of us, that decision is, is really, really hard. Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. 
doesn't make sense to me, God, but you're telling me to stay put here in Bethlehem. You're telling me to stay put here in in Boston. You're telling me to go to this school. You're telling me to end this relationship. You're telling me not to say yes when he's asking me out, but he seems like he's the only fish in the sea that's that's interested in me. God, this doesn't... Faith. God, I trust in you. Remembering also that Matthew chapter 7 says that the, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. There are few who find it. The gate is really big and broad. Everybody's in this gate and that leads to death. You might be the only one making the right decision. You might be the only one making this decision that, that you are convinced is what God has for you and, and it's going to require some faith. It's going to require some, I trust you, God. Maybe that's where you're at today. I trust you, God. Back to Ruth, Elimelech did not trust God. God made it clear, earlier steps, do not marry these people. Narrow road, and he got death because he made the wrong decision. Trust God, make hard decisions, even when you're alone. And know this, that every decision that you make, every decision that you make in life is a God decision. What I mean by that is there are not some categories that these you consult God on and these you do not. Every area of our lives, by nature of being a follower of Jesus, he says, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you're not willing to die for this, you cannot be my disciple. It costs everything. You are giving God everything. That means he touches every area of your life. Every decision is a God decision. Every single one. I I just pray that that our church family will increasingly grow to be a people who are biblically minded, who are making decisions that honor God, who are making the faith steps to live out what he is telling us to do, even when we feel like we're the only people doing it, that every decision gets run through a biblical filter. Not to say that when you've got that, that 10 second decision, you're going checking through and you're, no, it just comes more naturally as you, you keep exercising these steps and, and, and exercising faith in, in God. Run them through this filter. Incredibly helpful for me. And I pray it will be incredibly helpful for you. It's just one decision that can devastate. And for him, this decision was devastating. He moved too fast and he broke some things, didn't he? Broke up his family badly. One awful decision. But the good news is redemption. Broken glass. Shattered. And God doesn't look at it and go, oh no, they destroyed it for me. It's over. I had one shot. No, God looks at it. Your broken pieces, your bad decisions, all of us. He looks at it and says, aha, I got it. Here's what I'm going to do. In fact, this was my plan from the beginning so that they could experience my grace. Grace was the plan from the beginning because the after product, even after your mess, the redeemed, the restored, reworked, refurbished product is even better than the first because grace is intermingled in it. Let me show you a photo. I found this the other day. I want to go here. It's beautiful, huh? If you look carefully, that's not one of those mosaics that was carefully cut glass. That's just broken, jagged glass. As you think about the decisions that you make, as we read through this story, we see a broken, busted up family, bitter widow, 
the young widow. And yet God's saying, I'm going to do something really beautiful from this. Spoiler alert. She's going to get married to an amazing man. And ladies, you're going to love it. It's going to get all Nicholas Sparks. It's going to be good. She's going to get married to an amazing man. And they're going to have a child, Obed, who's the grandfather of David. It's going to be good. It's going to be really good. And from that lineage, it's going to come Jesus. Mistakes, Jesus swoops in and saves the day. And maybe the one decision that we have to make today, maybe the one decision we have to make today is to give our lives to Jesus in the first place. Maybe some of you have not made that one decision. One decision can be awful. By the grace of God, one decision to trust in the Redeemer, the Restorer, can change everything. If you've never given your life to Jesus, week in and week out, we will call you to give your life to Jesus, to trust in him. Jesus is God who came to earth, who lived in our shoes perfectly, undeserving of the result that Elimelech saw because of his sin, which is death. Jesus didn't deserve it because he never sinned, but he died. And he laid down his life by dying on a cross for you and for me. He was our substitution. He, he paid the price. And then, three days later, as we celebrated on Easter Sunday, he came back to life, showing his power over sin and death, showing, look at this beautiful masterpiece. You thought it was crushed. You thought it was shattered. But look how beautiful this is. And then he goes on and he tells us to follow him, to trust him. Some of you need to make that decision today to trust Jesus, to turn from sin, which is independence from God, and turn to faith. God, I trust you. I want to follow you. I call you to that and become a Christian. Others of us in this room, we are Christians, but we struggle. We do. As long as we're in what Paul calls this tent, our flesh, our body, we're going to struggle with making earthly decisions. Even though heaven is our home, we're going to make earthly decisions. This temporary tent that we're in. And you've been making some decisions that are just not honoring to God. Good news is, is that you didn't break it. It's still beautiful. God's grace is still there. And you are restored and renewed and God still loves you. But we do need to come back to God and say, God, I, I just confess I've been making decisions. I've been running my life apart from you. You are my Lord. Thank you for never leaving me or forsaking me. But God, help me to, to, to begin to make decisions that would honor you, to bring you into the process once again. And he'd be happy to do that. He won't shame you. He'll take you back with open arms. Wherever you're at today, I want to pray for you. And then I also want to pray for all of us because I know we have decisions ahead of us, maybe even this week that we need to make. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. God, we want to be a people who make decisions that reflect that we trust you. We want to be a people who live our lives in such a way that if we're standing alone, we're okay with it because we know that our God is good and perfect and has a plan and we can trust him. God, I pray for people who need to give their lives to you right now. In this moment, would they call upon your name and turn from the sin of independence from God and, and, and just be completely dependent and reliant upon you. I pray for those Christians in the room who they, they follow you, they trust you, and you, you love them, and, and they're forever yours, but they, they just 
struggle to go back to their own ways, their old ways, and are, are just living life on their own, making decisions apart from you. For all of us, if we see some real clear bad decisions, help us to, to take the next step appropriate, to deal with those things, to own up to it, to hand it to you, and to let you restore. God, help us this week as we make decisions probably every single day, small and big, help us to, to make decisions that honor you and to trust you. God, we love you. We thank you for the book of Ruth. We thank you for what you're doing. May you continue to move in our hearts through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.